My name is Zoe Bisping and my colleague Leslie Block, we both uh, we co-founded the uh, Full Bloom Project, which is a body positive parenting initiative and we co-host a eating disorder prevention podcast called the Full Bloom Podcast. And so we're curious if you have anything to say to parents of gender non-conforming youth, trans youth, um, that they can think about in the spirit of preventing some of these issues, body image concerns and eating disorders in those populations? So um, in seeing um, trans youth and their, and their families, um, it's very complicated. Um, and you know, it doesn't seem like for the, for the person who's transitioning, like anything is that different, but for the family, it, it is a loss. It, it sometimes can almost seem like a death, and they will grieve the the child that they the son or daughter that they that they once knew, and often it's it's very hard to explain that to the young person because they're um, you know they're finally going to get treatment and they're just psyched to go. Um, but it, it is something that you need to work out with, with the family. So um, I will bring that up. I, well, when I used to see patients, I would bring that up at once is that is to try to talk to the parents and to validate that I that I understand that's how they're feeling um, but uh, the young person probably doesn't feel like that and then talk to the young person is to give their parents a little bit of space because they are grieving the loss of their son or daughter and then I think that you really need to kind of work with the, the patient and the, and the family um, in, in terms of doing that um, in terms of the psychological team and the, and the medical team. It's, it's very challenging. It can be very challenging for some families from a religious perspective, um, but even if, if the family is very in favor of the LGBTQ community, it still, from a personal point of view, feels like a loss, and um, you, have to, you have to acknowledge that and, and work through that. That would be my thoughts. Yeah, I, I think time is important. I mean, motivation enhancement is something that you use in eating disorders all the time, and, and if you look at the motivation enhancement, structure the young person tend to be very much in the action point they want something happening whilst the parents are very much in the kind of pre-contemplation kind of stage or just they just got the news they have to get used to it and sometimes you just have to balance that out and, and help the parents to move into the action whilst holding the, the young person there um, but I think that that's the problem uh, one of the difficulties um, it is that people are at different stages into where they are and you just have to balance that and, and work with that and that's assuming that the parents are together and unified. When the parents are divorced or um, don't get along or in, in different parts and then you disagree, especially when they have joint custody, that's very challenging. Very challenging. Leslie and I attended the International Conference on Eating Disorders in New York City back on March 15th. The clip you just heard is from a session called Body Image and Trans People, which featured a conversation with Dr. John Asellis, a clinical professor in transgender health at the University of Nottingham, and Dr. Rachel Levine, the first transgender physician general for the state of Pennsylvania. Hi, and welcome to the Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe Bisbing and Leslie Block, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two, here to help you help your children fully bloom.
This episode is brought to you by the ABCs of Body Positive Parenting. These free virtual guides provide additional research and resources to help you put body positive parenting into action so you and your care providers can help your children fully bloom. To claim your free body positive parenting guide to the letter Z, please visit our website at fullbloomproject.com. We wanted to start off by explaining how we came to title this episode, What is Body Positivity for Z? When we started the Full Bloom Project, we knew we wanted to ensure it was an inclusive space that addressed the unique challenges of all young people, including those with differing gender identities. That includes transgendered children, as well as those beyond the gender binary. Simultaneously, we began creating our A to Z guide to body positive parenting, and we're pleased to find what we felt was the perfect word for the letter Z, which is Z, Z E slash Zer, Z I R. These are gender neutral pronouns that some gender non conforming individuals may prefer to use. What's interesting is that Today's conversation with Dr. Sabra Katz-Weiss and Dr. Carly Gus, who work together as instructors in pediatrics at Harvard Medical School, reminded us that even though we are dedicating today's conversation to gender nonconforming and transgender youth and their parents, we need to be clear and careful to not unintentionally lump together two very distinct experiences across the gender spectrum. There are nuances in how conversations about positive body image and the risk of eating disorders apply for people with different gender identities in particular. Unfortunately, research shows that people who are transgender face significant health disparities across a range of health outcomes when compared to cisgender peers, and this includes a higher risk for developing eating disorders. We are thrilled to welcome today's guests, who have also done extensive research on topics like sexual orientation and gender identity development, health disparities related to sexual orientation and gender identity in adolescents and young adults, and the relationship between gender identity and body image. Dr. Katz-Weiss and Dr. Gus, welcome to the Full Bloom Project. Hello, thank you so much for having me today. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I'm Dr. Carly Gus. I'm an adolescent medicine physician in the Division of Adolescent Young Adult Medicine and in the Division of Endocrinology at Boston Children's Hospital. And I'm an instructor in pediatrics at Harvard Medical School as well. What that all means is I'm a pediatrician who did extra fellowship training to care for teens and young adults um, after my pediatrics residency. So currently, I do both primary care and specialty care, and when I'm wearing my specialty care hat, I care for adolescents with eating disorders, those with period problems or contraception needs, those who are HIV positive, and I also provide gender-affirming hormone care in the Gender Management Services Clinic, also known as GEMS, at Boston Children's Hospital. So I see transgender and gender nonconforming youth for primary care in addition to specialty care as well. So I'm Dr. Sabra Katzweiss. I'm an assistant professor in adolescent young adult medicine at Boston Children's Hospital and in pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Um, Carly and I work together in the same division. And I also have a teaching appointment in social and behavioral sciences at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. 
I live in Providence, Rhode Island, even though I work in Boston, and I'm also the mom to a 15-month-old son, so I'm a, a parent myself. In my role as an assistant professor, I'm primarily a researcher, um, educator, and advocate specializing in LGBTQ health of adolescents and young adults with a special focus on families with transgender youth. I've done numerous research projects with families with transgender and gender nonconforming youth, um, including a recent project in which my team interviewed 33 transgender youth and their parents and siblings every six months over two years about their family and health. And another project that I'm currently working on with some colleagues to develop parenting guidelines for parents of transgender and gender nonconforming children. And Dr. Gus and I have also done a couple of research projects together focusing on transgender and gender nonconforming youth, um, which we can tell you more about. We're thrilled to have you both here today with us and would love to set the stage by hearing just a bit about how you each specifically work with parents of transgender and gender nonconforming youth. Sure, I, I can I can step in here. So uh, as a clinician in my clinic practice, if parents or guardians are, of course, crucial to the care of teens and young adults, uh, especially for those who are minors or under the age of 18. So um, I often uh, have parents or guardians present during portions of the clinic visit, but um, you know, as a standard of care for caring for adolescents, it's really important for teens to have one-on-one -on -one time with their clinician as well. So I also spend time alone with the child themselves. Um, and then in my specialty care practice, you know, especially important for parents or guardians to have also one-on-one -on -one time with me, I think, if the child gets it as well. So I usually spend part of the visit alone with the parent or guardian to sort of go over um, how things are going, other concerns they may have that they may not want to raise in front of their child, um, and then we often finish up the visit together. That is really how it works for me in my clinical practice. In my primary care practice, uh, we're a little bit more flexible. I see a lot of patients alone without parents. Um, if they're minors, uh, you know, that may be because their parent is at work or picking up other children or has other engagements, so often um, interact with them by phone or follow up by a phone call afterwards. So I primarily interact with parents in the realm of research, I would say. I've done quite a few interviews with parents with transgender and gender nonconforming youth about their experiences as parents and what it's been like um, to be the parent of a transgender and gender nonconforming child or adolescent. And I try to take a very community-based approach to my research, and that often involves connecting with a lot of um, parents in the community to help design the research and interpret the findings to make sure that the projects will really speak to the needs of parents and families with transgender youth. So I've also been able to connect directly with some parents um, that way as well. So when it comes to discussing the unique needs of transgender and gender nonconforming youth, can you share with us what you've learned in terms of the terminology that you would like our listeners, parents, and professionals to be clear about? So we can think about a number of different uh, distinctions that I think are important to make when we're thinking about um, transgender and gender nonconforming youth. 
And the first is sex versus gender. Um, so sex refers to the distinction of female or male at birth, uh, typically based on a number of different biological characteristics, such as genitalia and chromosomes. And gender is the socially constructed categories of girls or women and boys or men, including the different social norms and roles related to femininity and masculinity. So how we might expect someone to dress or to behave based on their assigned sex at birth. The second distinction is between gender identity and gender expression. We can think about gender identity as how someone identifies their gender in terms of a girl, a boy, both or something else, or neither. Um, this is how someone feels internally. And gender expression is how they show that identity or show their gender to other people through the way that they dress and behave. The next distinction that we think is important is uh, gender identity versus sexual orientation. These two things are often conflated but they are very distinct aspects of a person's self. So I already uh, defined gender identity for you, and we can think about that as different from sexual orientation, which refers to um, a person's attractions to other people, their sexual behavior with other people, and how they might identify those attractions and sexual behavior through labels such as gay or bisexual. So gender identity, again, is how someone... Um, internally identifies as um, a boy or girl or both or neither. And then sexual orientation is the attractions to other people. The next distinction I want to make is between transgender and cisgender. Uh, we can think of transgender as referring to people who identify with a different gender than their sex assigned at birth. Um, so for example, someone might be assigned female at birth, but identify as a boy. And cisgender refers to people who identify with the same gender as their sex assigned at birth. So as an example, I was assigned a female sex at birth and I identify as a woman. So I'm a cisgender woman. And the last distinction that I want to make is between binary and non-binary gender identities. Binary identities are consistent with the idea that there are two genders, female and male. So people who are cisgender have binary identities, and people who are transgender women or transgender girls and transgender boys also have binary identities. But there are also um, people who identify with non-binary gender identities, um, and these people identify kind of outside of the gender binary of female and male. They might identify as neither a girl nor a boy. They might identify as both a girl and a boy. They might um, use another gender identity entirely. And non-binary people often use the pronouns they, them, um, rather than she, her, or he, him. Oh, and then the last thing I want to mention that I think is important to this discussion is the idea, the concept of gender transition. Um, and this refers to the process of presenting as one's um, affirmed gender or identified gender through dress and behavior, the names and pronouns that a person is using. That's called a social transition. It 
can also refer to steps that a person's taking to change their body through the use of hormones or puberty blockers, which we can talk more about, and that refers to a medical transition. Gender transition can also refer to steps that a person takes legally to change their name or change um, their gender marker on an identification card, for example, and we can think about that as a legal transition. Thank you for that overview. Understanding basic terminology is so foundational to having productive conversation. And as I was listening to you run through that pretty extensive list of terms and important distinctions, I, I want all listeners to really just take a moment and think about any assumptions you had or any new information you just got because uh, I'm aware we could do a whole episode just on that and certainly eager to move on. But I am I'm so mindful of how any conversation about any of the issues we'll discuss today really hinges on a, a solid understanding of the different terms you just discussed. So as a, a point of segue, we have read that risk for developing eating disorders and other co-occurring mental health conditions and psychosocial stressors is higher, maybe higher in the populations that we're talking about today, gender nonconforming and transgender youth. We're wondering if this is true and if so, what more you can tell us about this? Unfortunately, there are a lot of um, health inequities and when we think about the health of transgender and non-binary individuals compared to cisgender peers. And I'll also give it with a caveat that unfortunately, non-binary individuals are uh, historically left out of research and that the questions aren't being asked uh, to uh, be able to identify which participants may, may be non-binary in order to separate out their uh, experiences, although that in a good way is changing, um, but that uh, these health inequities do exist, for example, um, especially for adolescents compared to cisgender peers, transgender teens are more likely to experience uh, violence victimization, um, especially at school or having um, negative experiences with bullying or being threatened in their place of school or where they receive education, being harassed and discrimination, which can include discrimination in the healthcare settings as well. And because we're going to be eventually in this podcast talking more about eating disorders and disordered eating, some of the work that Dr. Katzweiss and I have done together is examining disordered eating behaviors in transgender adolescents um, in the state of Massachusetts where we work. And then unfortunately, there's also elevated risk of disordered eating in order to lose or maintain weight for transgender adolescents compared to their cisgender peers, especially uh, fasting for 24 hours, uh, self-induced vomiting, concerning things there. And when we think about health inequities um, in this population, and this is maybe where I'll, I might turn it over to you, Sabra, to talk a little bit more about it. Um, there are some, some thoughts as to why this may be, could be um, related to um, several things, especially with eating in respect to eating disorder, so gendered appearance norms. So what we as a society view as someone who's feminine should be acting or look like versus masculinity. And with youth, some of these risks can really be 
compounded in that they're at risk of social rejection by their peers or being kicked out of their home by their parents or guardians. And then again, fearful about violence um, and being discriminated against. Dr. Catchwise, maybe I'll turn it over to you and maybe talk a little bit more about the minority stress theory as well. Sure. So the overarching theory that's often used to explain why transgender youth are at greater risk for a number of different health behaviors and outcomes is this idea of minority stress. Um, And this basically means that transgender youth um, experience different forms of prejudice and discrimination uh, based on the stigma of being transgender and that that causes stress, um, unique stress, that leads to using different kinds of behaviors to cope with that stress. So that might look like uh, using substances um, or unhealthy eating behaviors to cope with the stress. And then it also might look like um, that the stress might be related to negative mental health or physical health outcomes like Um, increased depression or anxiety or um, even suicidality. I want to ask you so many questions um, because, you know, what I'm hearing is what you're learning from the research, from your research and, and clinical experience is that there is a large risk in this population that we need to be aware of for disordered eating and eating disorder behaviors. Have you found anything about that in your research, like specific kind of triggers for body dissatisfaction, disordered eating in this population? So this is a a great area for more research that hopefully will be done. So hopefully there'll be more things coming out in this area from what we know currently and Um, You know, in my experience in working with this patient population is that for some folks, disordered eating may result as a way to undergo some uh, gender affirmation of their identity if there's not access to uh, gender affirming hormones or other gender affirming surgeries. So, for example, patients who are assigned female at birth and identify as male or somewhere on the masculine spectrum or even non-binary and find periods very dysphoric because guys don't get periods, maybe find that, oh, if I don't eat very much, I lose some weight, then my chest area looks maybe a little bit different. I get really, really low weighted, then uh, I'm not going to get periods. Um, and I shouldn't be getting periods. So I'm just going to continue with this very low intake. And I don't I don't see why I need to be getting a period anyway, because I'm a guy and I shouldn't be doing this. I had other patients do things like, you know, I've noticed that my body looks more feminine if I'm at a certain weight or the weight that my care team wants me to be at. And I don't want to be at that weight because it's really dysphoric. For me and not uh, affirming to my identity in order to be like that um, at that weight, even though they're telling me that's where I need to be. So that's certainly part of it that we found is that, and it's qualitative research in this area has found that two interviews with transgender individuals, although certainly that's not the case for everyone. Certainly folks can be transgender and also have an anorexia nervosa um, or other disordered eating like binge eating disorder. They're not necessarily 
necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, and I think that's really where there should there needs to be more work and sort of disentangling what is a body dysmorphic disorder, disordered eating versus um, gender dysphoria that's otherwise not being treated in other in another fashion. So uh, one of the things that Carly alluded to, but maybe didn't say explicitly, is that I think a lot of these um, body-related and eating-related uh, factors really come out during adolescence when youth are starting to go through puberty and their bodies are changing in a direction that doesn't affirm their gender. So they're you know, developing secondary sex characteristics like breasts um, or hips that may or may not um, be in line with the gender that they identify as. And and that's often a time when there's increased body dysphoria that might lead to some of these unhealthy eating behaviors. I'm thinking about how intuitive this could be for a child, preteen, adolescent, to stop eating if on some level they know it will suppress puberty. It sounds like there are safer ways to do this uh, than starvation. I know we'll talk a little bit more about that. But especially for a kid that maybe doesn't even know that those opportunities exist, and a kid who might be truly gender dysphoric, just having a lot of empathy for that that person who just tries as best they can to modify their biological body by any means that they feel they could control, um, just to be more like what they feel they truly are. So... I was just thinking about that as you were speaking. I think that's a, uh, you bring up, a, it's a really great opportunity for the parents listening to this podcast to be supportive of their child. Um, if their child is exploring their gender identity and expressing dysphoria or concerns or worries about puberty, one way to really be supportive of your child is to hear what they're saying and, you know, love them and accept them for who they are and what they're saying. And to also um, to try to find a gender affirming clinician who can talk about this more with the patient and the family and go over what options may be available to them, depending on where they are puberty staging wise. Um, this can be the pediatrician. This can be then the pediatrician refers out. Uh, you know, just to acknowledge that you know, finding a gender affirming clinician can be challenging um, to provide hormones or puberty blockers depending on where someone is located. But uh, there's now many, many academic centers that offer these services and telehealth that um, it just just an opportunity to point out that this is really a great area for parents to be supportive of their child um, because it, it would be better uh, for a young person to, if it's appropriate, be on a puberty blocker, meaning that puberty is paused while they explore their gender identity and they're not developing permanent secondary sex characteristics like breast development or dropping of the voice and development of an Adam's apple through a medical office rather than using disordered eating um, in order to achieve that through starvation, as you said. Yeah, I'm, I'm realizing that individuals are so lucky to, to get into your office. Um, I'm just feeling that, you know, you are one of the, the people out there doing really, really high quality care right now for transgender and gender nonconforming kids. Is there a place that parents listening or even providers, because we have a lot of providers, is there a place that they can quickly connect to who like you is near them? 
is there an association or some way that that's possible at this point? So I don't know that there, well, there's, there's different options for sure. Um, again, going through the pediatrician or primary care provider, uh, family practice can be a really great starting point because they may already be connected to folks in the community or they themselves are very comfortable in this area. The American Medical Association, there is listings and suggestions for clinicians. Um, but on the parent-facing area, there's a, a GLAMA Gay Lesbian Medical Association has LGBT friendly provider uh, directory there are uh, there's also pflag so pflag.org um, which also is it's actually a, a parent connection group um, in order to connect parents to other parents uh, I don't know that they have exactly a directory of clinicians but it may be a good starting point um, especially if there's a chapter in the area where they live to meet with other parents and connect with other parents and then find a gender affirming provider in that way. Um, so those are a couple options. Again, I think often using the primary care provider as a first step can be a, a really good way to go because they may um, already know um, where to go or have suggestions of where to go. Sabra, I don't know if you have other suggestions or things that in the interviews have done with families that um, families have found particularly helpful. Yeah, I also want to mention the organization Gender Spectrum, um, just as a really useful online support um, resource for families um, that isn't specifically directly connected to finding providers or affirming care, but it is a really important um, resource for parents for general support related to having a transgender or gender nonconforming child. I think a lot of what has come out in my interviews is that families find providers through referrals from other families, that other families have had either positive or negative experiences with different care providers, whether those are with therapists um, or pr medical practitioners. Going to someone who's already been vetted by another family can be um, really useful and important. The, the way to do that is to initially be able to connect with other families with transgender youth um, which you're, you can do through organizations like Gender Spectrum or PFLAG. That's great. And we will be sure to include those resources on our website so folks listening can access them. And just to circle back, we really want to think about prevention with you both. And based on everything we're discussing, it's so apparent that eating disorders, body image concerns, and other co-occurring issues like anxiety and depression, et cetera, are real risks here. And those risks are all barriers to blooming in full. So we want to think about how body positive parents who may have a trans or gender nonconforming child and also body positive providers who may work with these children, these adolescents, how we can all best set the stage so that everyone can have equal opportunity to bloom in full. One place to start is whether or not we need to rethink or reframe body positivity for transgender and gender non-conforming youth. While body positivity is very can be very empowering and important, especially for cisgender people, body positivity may not be appropriate for transgender and non-binary youth. There was a great article in 2017 in the Huffington Post by Jamie Bichelle 
I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing their name correctly, that describes how language and treatment of eating disorders isn't always applicable to the LGBTQ community. In fact, Bushell used the term sometimes, unfortunately, fail the community and that, um, you know, body positive language can feel dismissive to transgender people who desire gender affirmation. And so uh, some colleagues at Seattle Children's have suggested thinking about moving towards more of body neutrality, which I thought was an interesting approach. So thinking of it more of a harm reduction approach, especially for teens and young adults who may not have gone through all the um, transition stages that they were hoping to have. You know, brief uh, sidestep here is that, um, you know, when we talk about different types of transition, like Dr. Katzai was speaking earlier in the podcast, that uh, not all transgender individuals have the same path of what they desire, whether it's social transition, medical transition, or surgical transition. But for those who are hoping someday to have medical affirmation and surgical affirmation, you know, thinking about uh, well, body positivity for them, their body isn't positive for them. It's not the way it should be for them. So that instead, this concept of a body neutrality, so focusing on function and respect to their body. So in other words, you know, to kind of take a do no harm to your body approach um, and that how can that be an opportunity in order for the individual to go on to do all the stuff they want to do. So you know, one example they gave was, for example, you, know, you um, really need good vital signs um, in order to be able to have uh, your gender affirming surgery. Let's see how we can proceed with treatment and be keep our body in a place that we're healthy enough to do that, or we want to be in the school play, what can we do in order to you know, not harm our body in order to move forward in that way? I really thought that that's a, a kind of an interesting approach when working with transgender youth. And I think that we can always encourage, of course, parents and guardians to be supportive of their child and affirming to their gender identity as a, as a starting point, because really without that foundation, being affirming in the parent-child relationship, I think pre- preventing eating disorders related to, to gender dis- that may or may not be related to a gender dysphoria would be very, very challenging. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that that's so primary, right? I imagine that you you see this a lot, and I would love to hear what your families in the research have just qualitatively said about that process, because that process, in my experience working with some families who had transgender children or were in that process together, really, it's a process for parents And I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about what you've heard from families around this, around kind of being able to first be affirming of their child's identity. Yeah, I can speak to that um, a little bit from the research side. In, In my experience doing research with this population, parents have a wide range of reactions um, when they learn about their child's gender identity. And this can run the gamut from being fully affirming and supportive immediately to, you know, initially being a little bit more hesitant and then later being supportive to being quite negative and and unfortunately, some youth experience um, extreme uh, rejection from families as well. And I think that the, the timeline piece is really important because often when transgender youth come out to the parents, they've already been thinking about this for years and they're, you know, ready to take some steps often to transition, whether that means socially transitioning to, you know, 
wear the clothes and, and hairstyles and things that feel important to them or to actually take steps to medically transition. So on the parent's side, parents are often just learning this information for the first time. Some of them may have had you know, some clues or indications that their child may be transgender, but oftentimes, sometimes it comes out of the blue for parents and it's, it's kind of new information and they, they often need a little bit more time to get used to it. And that's really a mismatch often with what's happening with their child um, in terms of being ready to move forward with gender affirmation. And I, I think that that's where a lot of um, conflicts sometimes happen um, and where there's kind of a, a missed opportunity in some ways for parents to be able to support their child um, in those moments of first disclosure. In your thinking as a researcher, what could we do better to reduce that challenge? Being very, very compassionate and kind with all sides of the equation, what could make this easier for everyone? Mm -hmm. I think a large piece of it is uh, knowing more about how each type of family member may be experiencing disclosures about gender identity and having a trans youth in the family in the first place. So what I mean by that is if uh, parents knew more about the identity development of their child um, and that there are transgender people out there, like knowing about that existence and that that might be a possibility for their child, it might not come as such a shock potentially. Um, similarly, on the on the child side, you know, recognizing that this is new information for their parents, it might take them some time. We also do research on my team in terms of thinking about the sibling experience too, and what does it feel like to be the sibling in a family, a, you know, a cisgender sibling in a family with a transgender youth, and um, what's the sibling's role in all of this? And and it really is a it's a transition for the whole family to have a transgender child in the family and thinking about how the family reacts to that child and goes through the process. Everyone's going through some sort of transition together. I appreciate that you're acknowledging that the family is affected. And I wanted to go back to something Dr. Gus was saying. It's really interesting for us to think about reframing body positivity for gender nonconforming and trans youth as potentially something very different I'm wondering how you feel about parents listening to this podcast who may be really embracing body positive parenting and absorbing all the information we're sharing and doing their darndest to help their children fully bloom and modeling and encouraging body positivity and then perhaps have a child come forward with news that they are questioning their gender identity. Do you think that there is any risk to having practiced or modeled body positivity? Is it just a matter of switching gears towards more neutrality? I really want us to be sure that there are no unintended consequences of promoting body positive parenting to all. Yeah, great question. I, you know, I think we're we're probably moving into a data free area here. So this will be my opinion. My opinion would be that if a child comes out as being non-binary or transgender, and I think the conversation really changes, right? It's about 
okay, you know, I, I love you. You're still my child. I support you. And, and then, you know, what does that mean as far as who you are and what your goals are? Obviously that's not going to be all in one sitting, right? That's going to come out over time um, about what that might be. And as Dr. Katzweiss said, a lot of times, you know, when I hear from patients about their gender story, by the time they get to my office, especially in the gender management services clinic, they've been thinking about this for a long time, sometimes years, or, you know, have always known and just didn't have the language for it to describe it. And so you know, that's where I ask them, you know, what goals do you have? Tell me more. Some ways to ask a little bit differently about gender, you know, how do you feel about your body or shape? How does it that relate to your gender identity? These are a little bit more clinically related questions, but what is the goal of the child for their body to match their gender identity? Because again, everyone's gender journey is different um, and not everyone has the same goals. And so depending on what the goals might be, so for example, a kid comes out, I'm really dysphoric about my breasts. I really don't like them. I want a someday to have top surgery, to have a, a masculine appearing chest. Then doing body positivity with that child before they have top surgery might be really challenging because how might that make them feel? And I wonder if that's where then starting to switch the language or again, let the child lead and where they feel most comfortable language that they want to be used. And then again, moving forward on a gender journey, that's hand in hand, the, the child leading the way, parent or guardian being supportive of them um, onto their um, whatever that might be. So let's think about this um, in summary a little bit, but also in your own thinking and opinions, I think probably more opinions than evidence-based or, or research-informed. What is the one thing above all things that each of you would like all parents to do on the regular to promote body positivity? I'm going to just say body neutrality, maybe. I'm going to ask this question in that way. Um, in in the transgender and gender nonconforming youth in their lives. Uh, it's a little hard to pinpoint just one thing that parents can do. Um, although I think consistently using their transgender or gender nonconforming child's name and pronouns is a really big one. But perhaps more importantly, parents really need to be listening to their child and, and thinking about their child as the expert of their own uh, gender journey, as Dr. Gus named it, that they are really the expert of what's happening with their gender and how they're experiencing their gender. So the only way to know, you know, how their child is feeling about their body and and the steps that they may or may not want to take to change their body is to listen to what they have to say about it. Well, wow, that's very excellently said. I, I don't have a whole lot that'll echo the name and uh, use of name and pronoun is just is so important. Um, and, and I'll just add that um, everyone deserves to feel in affirmed in who they are and their identity. And I think if parents and clinicians alike, if any are tuning into this, keep that in mind when interacting with their child or speaking with patients or clients as a guiding principle, I think that that can be very, very helpful and meaningful for patients and children as well. Yeah, I'm thinking so much about just, you know, how this is missed in general, I have two small girls, about to be five and six, and it's just something that while there's talk about size diversity, 
that's happening more and more in their um, environment. There's not a lot of talk about gender diversity. It's very binary. And it's just something that I'm thinking about listening as a parent that even from the beginning, it, it causes the challenge for our kids to feel affirmed and just being able to discover this for themselves. I'm hopeful that the future moves in a direction that there's more diversity. Yeah, I would agree. I think that having a non-judgmental stance is 100% applicable to the topic of transgender and gender non-conforming youth. I think um, one thing that I wanted to add that I think is really important for parents to think about is that being transgender or gender non-conforming is not a mental illness. And I think because it's been... Um, and is still in some form in the diagnostic manual statistical and mental disorders. Did I get that acronym right? The DSM. It's not actually a mental illness. It's it's really about this mismatch between you know having an identity that doesn't necessarily fit with how society is organized or the expectations that we have for people related to gender. Um, but it's not an inherent. Uh, mental health problem in youth. So I think that that's really important for parents to keep in mind, that it doesn't mean there's something wrong with their child. It really means that perhaps accommodations need to be made so that their child feels seen and heard in our society. I'm so glad you made that clear in the same way that we talk a lot on the podcast about how this plays out with families who have kids in larger bodies where society may tell them that there's something wrong with them, when in reality, there's nothing wrong with them. They just happen to be shaped in a way that doesn't happen to match up with society's ideals. And yeah, I'm wondering if you think it's reasonable to make that analogy, that just because it's different, you look different, you feel different, and not perhaps what the mainstream recognizes as quote-unquote normal, that it has nothing to do with what's normal or healthy. Yeah, I think that's a really useful analogy for, for parents to think about, um, that it is really about what are the expectations and norms in our society for the way that people should, in quotations, look like. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much for having us. What did you think? I thought that was an eye-opening conversation. Yeah, I'm realizing how much there is that I didn't know about the relationship between gender identity and body image. I agree, especially that point about body positivity versus body neutrality. It's giving us all, I think, a lot to think about. And I do, I really want us to be thoughtful about how we may be inadvertently using language that's not inclusive or acknowledging of a whole group of people's experience. And, you know, I think we have a good mission here to promote body positivity, but that reframe to think about body neutrality maybe as the goal for someone that's body dysphoric, it's an important distinction for us to be mindful of. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about this and so many different kind of arcs of our society. It's a very complicated topic Mm -hmm. because 
we, our society puts a lot of pressure into these norms. I mean, mm-hmm. societies have norms. It's the construct of society. Mm-hmm. And we don't all fit. They don't all fit. They mm-hmm. don't all apply. Yeah. And how do we keep pushing forth or keep really listening to our kids and really supporting them to be themselves versus fit. Right. And I feel that that's the core, right, of body positivity in my Mm -hmm. perspective. And being a body positive parent is, you know, the greater mission of just letting our kids bloom as they are and um, not as they fit. I agree. And I am thinking of a couple of things. One, how in our non-judgmental stance episode, how Dr. Kennedy had talked about body positivity kind of coming from within, like really being okay with who you are from the inside out and how it's a little abstract of an idea, a little ideal of an idea, but this idea that who we are really is inside. And I'm also thinking about this is really hard work for parents because if you have a child that for any reason, maybe since we're talking particularly about gender nonconforming, transgender or gender nonconforming kid, where there really, you know, isn't as easily a place for them, not in the world as we know it. Maybe we're, we see a little more of that here in New York City than maybe somewhere in this deep south. But I mean, really, in terms of the mainstream. So it's my way of saying this is so hard for parents, I think, that even if you say, well, I want my child to be who they are then as a parent, I can appreciate just being like, oh, I wish I could just change the world tomorrow. <laughs> right. And then make this world be one size fits all, or not one size fits all, but make this all world. All sizes fit. Right. And make, all, all people. All people, all humans, no matter how you identify, no matter who you're attracted to. Well, I think we need to be really honest about something right now, or I feel the need to, which is, There's expectations put upon genders for how bodies ideally look based on gender. And so how does that translate into our kids who don't feel that they are the gender that they were assigned? And how does that already make them feel uncomfortable in their bodies, dysphoric, Mm -hmm. and potentially attach even stronger to an ideal that matches how they feel the gender is that they are, if they if they are feeling a certain gender or, or identifying with a certain gender at all. I think it's just really confusing. And I think when I was doing this interview, I was just thinking about, oh my gosh, there's so much emphasis on the gender when you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the first question people right. ask you. What and are you we, having? We just have this concept that that's how it's going to be. That's how right. uh, that's who our kid is from the baseline. Right. So blue or pink? Yeah, I mean, right. we've you know we we have some advances in our society around the blue or pink, for example, right, right. but. Still, it's not in the spirit of being curious about who your kid is fundamentally outside of that binary. To begin with, we just already are in that binary. Like there's just no room. 
I'm thinking about the Academy of Eating Disorders when we asked Dr. Rachel Levine a question. And one of the things that she said was allow parents a moment of grieving, you know? Like, I don't fault a single parent who gets excited that they're having a baby girl and paints the nursery pink. You know, I don't. Their nursery was blue. You know, like, I knew they was having boys and I painted it blue. Like, I think that there's nothing inherently wrong with it. And because we go there, right, I think what she was saying is if you do have a child who's emerging or, you know, identifying with a gender that isn't the one you thought they were, right, to, one, allow them to be who they are, but also recognize how painful a loss that could be, right, and how hard that transition might be for you too, right? And I think that we want to be able to talk, you know, this, this, this podcast, this project, it's, yes, it's to help children fully bloom, but it's really to support parents so that they can help their children fully bloom. And I want to really bring that statement in here that like, it's okay if you're having feelings about what's happening. And I think this could extend to like, if you have a child in a larger body, or if your child is maybe cisgender, but physically doesn't look like the the ideal, right? Or doesn't look like the quote unquote norm. And that has nothing to do with gender, but has maybe more to do with body shape and because of body shape, not conform to our gender norms, physio- like physically. Yeah, I also really appreciated in this conversation and want to highlight that the more we can get on board with our kids who are experiencing, who are gender nonconforming and, tra- and transgender, the quicker access they will have to safer methods for managing the body changes that they might want to experience Mm -hmm. because that's where a huge risk for eating disorder symptoms lies enormous and you know the the quicker we can get kids into the hands of medical providers who really truly understand where the science is with this and can can help us the safer our kids are from the risk of developing any type of body dissatisfaction, further body dissatisfaction or eating disorder, disordered eating behaviors. Totally. And I think connected to that, I I wish we had had more time because we could have learned a little more about puberty blockers. But I really appreciated what she was saying about puberty blockers are an option for a youth who is contemplating their gender, right? And what I know about puberty blockers and what I know she was alluding to is that it's a safe way to stop temporarily, but you can always resume like natural physiological development. Whereas starvation or anorexia, which I know it's one eating disorder that we sometimes see, right? We're calling it less safe, not just because there might be immediate risks to health, right? But then there's that risk of chronicity of illness and just developing a lifelong eating disorder, crappy relationship with your body, crappy relationship with food. And all that sounds so much worse than striving for like body neutrality and a safer approach to truly exploring who you are. Yeah, next season. Next season. (laughs) (laughs) So that's our show. That's our show. 
And as always, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please leave a review for us on iTunes so more listeners can find us and listen. And perhaps most importantly, those of you that are listening that want access to those free downloadable ABC guides to the episodes, please visit our website at fullbloomproject.com where you can join our mailing list. And as always, tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom.